New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. Jim Mandrinos here, uh, host of the Comedy Legacy Series, brought to you by New Media Comedy Worldwide. And today, very first shoot post, post-COVID, we are, well, it's not post-COVID, but very first shoot with the relaxed pandemic rules here at New Media Comedy Studios. And everything in the studio is wonderful. It's great to be back, and it's great to be back with all of you. Um, <clears throat> everything about the studio is wonderfully real, except for that fruit, which is absolutely fake. But we're not here to talk about the fruit. We are here to talk about the Comedy Legacy series, which the 13 episodes we've already aired uh, have been a wonderful experience for everybody here at New Media Comedy. We have gotten to speak to so many great artists about their process, about how they create art, and about their expectations from not only the industry, but themselves. And we've gotten to share that with all of you. Hopefully you've gotten to know these artists not only as craftspeople, but as human beings. We've spent time with great friends of mine. We've spent time with people that I barely knew. But all of us, all of us that are in this are united in one thing. We all love the art of comedy. And we're all willing to share what we know with you. Now, when we started, I had a meeting with everybody here at New Media Comedy, and they said, go big, ask people that you respect, ask people you admire, ask people you think that the viewers could learn something from. And I did. And I was able to bring in a lot of friends, but my very first guest, the very first person that we recorded when we started this was a gentleman that I had spent a grand total of three minutes meeting prior to this. Um, but he's somebody that I've respected my entire life as a comic. Mr. Tom Dreesen, who's been an opening act for Frank Sinatra, who has toured worldwide, who's been up in front of audiences of 50,000, who still today, 50 years into his career, is doing TV spots. And he was kind enough to come and talk to us about his process, his art, and what he does to be better every day. Now, you could listen to me sing his praises, or you could just... Watch this next clip and spend a little bit of time with Tom Dreesen. Okay, let me digress on one thing when you say sure. that. For all professions, if you want to become uh, a brain surgeon or a stand-up comedian or, or, or a, a pilot, study the masters. Study the masters. If you're going to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just go watch, uh, you know, study brain surgery. You'd go watch the brain surgeons operate. And that's what I did. And that's what every young comedian watch the other comedians that, that, you know, some that you'll like or some you won't like. It doesn't matter. Those who've been doing it longer than you, if they're on stages that you want to be on one day, watch them. That's, that's what I did. And that's how I ended up getting on the tonight show. I watched those comedians on the tonight show and what they were doing to succeed. You know, when you first set out in stand up comedy, every comedian starts out emulating another comedian. I can almost always tell when I watch a new comedian on an open mic night, if I happen to stop in, that I'll say, oh, he likes uh, Jerry Seinfeld or, or he likes Chappelle. Or, you know, I can see that they're using that style. But eventually, what you have to do, we all start out emulating another comedian because we know that works. You know, so we go up there and we're doing an impression of a comedian. And then one day you let a little bit of you out. And if it gets a laugh, if it doesn't get a laugh, you pull back in and you start doing the impression of the comedian again. One day you let a little bit of you out. If it gets a laugh, then you let a little bit more of you out and eventually you evolve and eventually you become you on stage. Candid camera had the greatest line of all. 
caught in the act of being yourself. You know, Picasso said, you know, do you, do you want to, uh, you know, be a great painter? You know, uh, try to emulate another painter. Try to paint like another artist. I dare you. You'll fall short. But in falling short, you'll find out who you are. And when that day arrives, when that day arrived, when I really felt so comfortable on stage as me, as Tom Dreesen, not, not anybody else, just me, that's when I started to really grow. And, and, and I make this analogy to young comedians all the time. If you're a guy or a girl, pretend that your spouse is in the kitchen and you've got 25 people in your living room and dinner isn't ready yet and your spouse panics and says, Jim, Jim, go, go out to, go tell them about growing up in New York and, and, and because dinner won't be ready for 25 minutes. You walk into the living room and there's all these people who say, look, dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes, but I got to tell you, when I was growing up, going to school, my mother used to always, and you start telling, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Write that on the blackboard. It's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. But it's your job to make it look like it's not an act. You know, it's a conversation, not a presentation. And so when, you, when I tell young comedians, that every night when you walk out on that stage, you're walking out into your living room. Most comedians are intimidated. Most young people, men and women are intimidated. They think we're going into the their house, you know, and that intimidates us. No, it's our house. Put that in your frame of mind. Perceive it as this is our house and they're in our house. If they could do what we do, they'd be up there. They can't do what we do. That's why they're in the audience. So when you walk out on stage and I pretend you're in your living room and it's a conversation, not a presentation. It taught how to do that just before you go to sleep at night and just when you wake up in the morning because that's when your conscious mind is most at rest. So your subconscious mind is then open to suggestion. So, but it has to see a picture with an emotion to kick it into action. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. So when I was sleeping in the abandoned car and I couldn't get on at the comedy store, I was hitchhiking there every night trying to get on at the comedy store. Every night before I'd go to sleep, I'd image Johnny Carson saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. I'm gonna do this here while I'm talking to you. Uh, hold on one second. I should've, I should've had this out. I would, pick, I would picture Johnny Carson saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. Knowing that if I was sitting there talking to Johnny, I'd already succeeded doing stand-up. Because in those days, you had to do you know, a, a successful stand-up. You had to do two or three shots on The Tonight Show before Johnny called you over. You know? So I, if, I, if I was sitting on the couch next to Johnny, then I'd already succeeded doing the stand-up comedy, right? So I would see that every night. You're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. This is the picture I imaged in my mind when I was sleeping in the abandoned car. Can you see that? Or Absolutely. Back? That's beautiful. See, this, this is, you know, nothing can become a reality unless it's thought first. This is the picture I, I imaged in my mind that, that, that when I was sleeping in the abandoned car. So I use those principles that I learned all those years. You know, again, nothing can become a reality. Those headphones you have on your head. That, that, that was a thought before it became a reality, that everything you see in front of you, you know, that my Navy had. These were thoughts before they became realities. The same thing applies to your life. And once you image that end result, then the body says, now I know where you want me to go. The pilot who flies the 747 from L.A. to Boston every day, do you think he drives out, drives 100 miles an hour, right, drives out to the tarmac, runs aboard the aircraft, gets, takes off down a runway, and when he gets airborne, says, now where am I going? So for me, part of the fun of this is actually getting to spend time with old friends, people that I've worked in the industry with for decades, and people who I've grown with as an artist. And I had three really close friends on this season, 
with me. Um, we had Carol Montgomery, who's probably my oldest friend in comedy. Uh, Leanne Lord, who I've known for over 25 years. And Anita Wise, who she and I grew up in comedy together. We open mic together. You cannot have a tighter bond as a comic than somebody that you open mic with. And all three of these wonderfully funny women uh, came in and talked to me about how they craft. Carol talked to me about how she got her show, Funny Woman of a Certain Age, onto television. Leanne, who is a master at organization, talked to me about her process for keeping track of her material. And Anita Wise came and talked to me about the impact that the business had in, in her move out to Los Angeles. They were all great, interesting conversations. You should watch the whole videos, but take a look at these clips. I think you're going to enjoy them. Well, one of the things about that I love about comedy, and Jim knows this about me, you know, I've... I was going to do this no matter what it took. Do you know what I mean by that? Like yeah. it just, oh, yeah. you know, I've always loved it and I've had to shift so many fucking times, but you know, my manager, my manager said, don't get pregnant. You're going to ruin your career. And I was like, well, I want to have a kid. And I knew that I was, I was, I think I was early thirties. I think I had lane when I was 33. So I was 32 and I was like, I have to do it now. I can't keep going on the road. So, so every time somebody said, you can't do it, I went, um, watch me. And I did, you know, I mean, I had Lane, I, the Showtime Comedy Club All-Stars that I mentioned, that ended up, uh, I was back on TV like three months after he was born. I ended mm. up getting that then. So I've always done that. I've always reinvented myself because there's, as you know, there's no straight line in stand-up comedy. Everybody thinks, well, I'll be Seinfeld. And yeah, but even Seinfeld, you know, he was he was a major road comic before he did the TV show. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's always different avenues that you can go. Yeah. Wow. Are you talking about, well, you know, because me, I don't throw anything out. I'm like no. the, the comedy recycler, you know. I mean, <laughs> I literally, for the second show, for the second special, all the material was about Lane. From yeah. the moment I gave birth to 28. So that material is really fucking old. Yeah. So, um, uh, but they, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure this has happened to you where you'll, like, you'll think of, somebody will say, hey, remember that bit you used to do? And I'm like, oh yeah, well, I don't, I'm not doing that bit. And then you do it, but you tweak it. You tweak yeah. it in a way like, you know, oh, maybe if I say it this way, or if I drop a letter, or I do that, and, 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 and it'll end up being a, a much better joke. I mean, the jo all the stuff I did about Lane, the reason that happened was, is I was originally going, the, the first special I was going to do, the, the, the lane chunk. And I just couldn't, for the life of me, you know, I'm 62 years old, I can't remember shit. So I was, I was, I was literally working the weekend before the special was going to be taping. And I was working in the Poconos and I was doing, you know, my 45 minutes of dick jokes. And there's a chunk in the, in the middle of my act, which is just like that, tight, fucking perfect. And I remember saying to Ty when I got home, I said, I'm doing that piece. Because I haven't done it. Like, when you're doing a TV show, you grab pieces from all your different bits because you're trying to, you know, do it concisely and everything. Yeah. So, that's why I, so that's why that didn't happen for the first special. I did really tried and true material. For the second special, I didn't know we were having the second special. But because I was working on the lane stuff to try to get it for the first special, it ended up becoming part of my act again. And it got yeah. stronger. And it got tighter. And that's why it ends up in the second special. Now, let's talk about two things. One is, um, I remember uh, when the Underground Comedy Festival uh, had live shows in New York. Uh, um, yes. 
me tagging you to MC yes. and asking you to MC because in my opinion, the MC is the most valuable position on a show. Oh when yeah. If your MC is good, you're going to have a good show. If your MC is horrible, you have a horrible show. And you are an unbelievably underrated MC. Ah, thank you. So what do you think makes for a good MC? Well, I think the reason I'm, I, I, the, I think the reason I'm a good MC is because of the 10 years in Vegas, because basically that's what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like people are not coming to see me in Crazy Girls. They were coming to see the tits and oh, okay, there's 10 minutes of, you know, of a woman talking. So we'll listen to her. So I got really used to, like there's, there's stock lines that I, I did in Vegas that I will still use now. Like, like in Vegas, there was always a father that was bringing his fucking 21 year old son to see the show. So I would immediately find him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I yeah. would always co and that would become my, that would become my go-to person. I would, everything I did was to him. And I still do that. I still do that. Um, you know, I always find the youngest person in the, I always find the youngest person in the show so I can fuck with him. I did it on the special, the first special. I, there was a young girl right in the front row, looked like she was 12 years old, just nailed her. And then Lynn Coplis, who went on after me, yes, after Carrie, she went right after her. So like we, there was a nice little, you know, flow through. But the, the thing about an MC is it's, it's not about you, it's about the show. And that's the thing as, as a comic who was in titty shows, it's not about you, you're there to make the people laugh and let's bring on the girls again. So that's, it's, it's if, if there's like, in other words, you open the show, warm the crowd up, you know, where you're from, what do you do? Maybe do a couple of jokes, bring on the first act. At some point, if you want to do your material, do it somewhat in the middle of the show where it's warm, the audience is warm. So they'll, they'll be more responsive to you, you know, and don't do a lot of material. It's not, this, being an MC is not about you, it's about the show. And that's really hard for comedians to understand. Yeah, it certainly is. I also want to talk about performance style because you, your style has evolved over the years but it hasn't changed over the years. You're up there, you are bigger than life, you're, mm -hmm. you take control of the room, and you've, it, it's just amazing. You have as much energy with me watching you now perform as you did when I saw you as a 25-year-old perform. Well, that's the drugs. <laughs> Is it the drugs? <laughs> it's the drugs. Um, so what's the question? My, I think we my question is, <laughs> You stopped me with the drug reference and I had a flashback. Um, my question is, performance-wise, how much of what you do was an evolution and how much was conscious thought and construction? Well, I think when I was younger, I, I know when I was younger, I was a much angrier person on stage and I took everything personal. That's the first thing. But I was much angrier so when i went after somebody people were terrified because i wouldn't you know I, I i there would be no witty repartee between me and the heckler it would be like are you heckling me and i would get off the stage and want to stab them so i learned to <laughs> bring that down um i think a lot of what you're seeing now on stage is 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 40 years of knowing that i'm good at what i do mm -hmm. um uh you know and understanding the way crowds work um, the, the great thing about Vegas was there were a lot of foreigners. There were, 
you know, I mean, I, especially towards the end. Um, uh, but, you know, I would say 50% of the audience was foreigners. Sometimes it was all Asian. And I had to get up there and do my act as if they were laughing uproariously. And what you do at that point, you just go, hey, so, blah, 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 blah. One, you know, like in your mind, you're like, okay, wait here. This is where the beat is. This is where the laugh was. And you go in. So I learned, I learned not to take, uh, I, I learned to know what is funny and what's not funny by, by having an audience that sometimes could understand me and sometimes could not understand me. So, and mm. I think, I think the confidence comes from, I know that I would say most, most of my stuff is funny. I would say a lot of it is funny. Sometimes there'll be a hit or miss, but for the most part, the jokes are there. So that's, that comes from confidence of just saying, well, if you don't laugh. I'll be there. I'll be at another show and they'll, they're going to laugh. And that's, you know, that's really hard for a comic that yeah. it, the, the thought of not hearing laughter, which is why one of the reasons why I won't do zoom shows, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> um, the thought of not hearing laughter is really hard for us. And when I talk with people about solo shows, and I even said this with, to you, um, Pete Spellos actually gave me the greatest advice about solo shows is that if you are on stage doing a solo show, and they're not laughing, that means they're listening. And you want them listening. So yeah. I sometimes, for the hell of it, will, will throw an audience just to see if I can get them back because <laughs> I'm bored on stage. You know, because I used to do a whole bit uh, yeah. about Lane and uh, the, you know, finding out that he jerked off, which is on the special. But back in the day when I first started doing that special, that, that, that piece, you could hear it, the audience was so fucking tense. They were so like, what is she, what, what is she, you know, and then I came up with the punchline, which of course I can't remember right now. Um, uh, and, and, and the applause was so great because it was like a relief laugh. Yeah. So, but, but I do that. I'm like, I like, I like doing that. I like making the audience hate me and then switching around. Cause I know I can do that, but that's 40 years of fucking stand up. Yeah. Knowing how to just manipulate the audience. And when you're first starting out, all you want is them to laugh at you. All you care about. Are they laughing? Is it funny? So first, first, first and foremost, get it out of your head. You know, I, I talk about this. I've said this many times and I will repeat myself. Ideas are living jealous things. And if they come to you and you don't pay them any mind, you don't acknowledge their presence by writing them down, they will go, oh, you don't want me? And that idea will flit off to somebody else. And then a week, a month, a year later, you will see your idea coming out of somebody else's mouth as a joke or as a book or as a screenplay. And you'll go, but I had that idea first. But you didn't even do anything. You didn't do the first basic step of writing it down. You know, so you have to capture it, even if it's a word, a word, ideally a sentence, ideally, you know, what is the context? What's, what's that feeling? Because sometimes you can write down a word, you go mayonnaise, you know, what, what, what did that mean? <laughs> so help yourself out, you know, give yourself a little more. And there's no, absolutely no reason why ideas shouldn't be captured with regularity. You know, you, there's a note feature function on your phone. You are never without the opportunity to capture an idea. So you get that idea down. Uh, you do spend some time fleshing it out. And, you know, sometimes some ideas, you know, you know, you know, pick me, pick me more than others. And I say, go with that. If you're excited about an idea, you know, you're going to spend a little bit more time with it. You're going to spend more time, you know, writing it down, flushing it out. And, you know, my mentor taught me that the first 10 jokes 
uh, that you write are, are the same 10 jokes the audience probably came up with in their head. Uh, that then you haven't done your job. You really, really have to keep writing and keep pushing. Like, what is that idea? Why is this funny to you? What is funny about it? What is your point of view? Because there are honestly but so many topics. You know, you could have five comics on stage talking about relationships. Uh, that should be five completely different points of view. And you almost don't feel like you heard uh, jokes on the same topic because it's from different people and different points of view. And so I, I, I spend time writing and editing and I really get down into the weeds in terms of words. You know, how, how, I'm, how many syllables are in this sentence? Do I need more? Do I need less? It's almost always less. Uh, you know, is there something alliterative about this that I could do? And I, you also, once you become an experienced comic and you know your voice, you know what words roll off the tongue you know, better than others, or you know how you're going to pause, or you know the, the, the facial expression or the, or the act out that you're going to do. So you kind of also make room for that in the writing. And then there's also then, okay, so you have a joke or you have a bit, where do you put it in the existing family puzzle of jokes? And I, I know that we differ on this. When you do a new joke, you do it right up front. <laughs> you just, you throw it to the wolves. Uh, I, not so much. Occasionally I'll do it. You know, I'm so excited and it's a joke that you have to open with. Uh, but usually I, I treat my new jokes or my new bits sort of like baby birds. <laughs> you know, I put them in the middle with the other grown up jokes. Like, I, okay, I know this works and I know this works. And then I put the new one in the middle so that, you know, the bigger kids walk the little one to school. And we'll see how it does. You know, I give it a little buffer. I give it a little protection. Um, and if it does okay, or I can at least see how to fix it or, 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 or tweak it, it then begins to move around. And how well can it stand on its own? You know, how do I help it grow? I know this is all manic. This is all very manic. No. Um, but also in terms of my, you know, set book, I, I do really do believe in writing things down. And I really do see it as movable puzzle pieces, having it in a single document. Uh, I use a Word document. Uh, my bits are, I can be rearranged at any point. Uh, they are tagged uh, with, you know, the super topic, the, the, that particular joke. And I have, so that allows me to do a table of contents. So there's my active set at any one point. There's new material that I'm still developing. There's old material that I'm like, ah, I don't know. I guess I should go back and rework this, but I'm not in the mood, but it's there. Uh, and then there's things that have just fallen out of the act or their ideas that I haven't completely developed that I'll put off in the back in an alphabetical section. So if I'm bored, I'm never bored, but you know, on those random times that I'm bored, I'll go, I'll say D and I'll go to the D section and I'll look at stuff that I've written, I've dumped off in the D section, you know, jokes about dads or dogs or dating. And sometimes I look and I go, yeah, I should delete that. <laughs> or, or sometimes you'll have an idea and you're just not a good enough comic yet, or you don't have what the, the resources to really flesh that out. And I'll come back to something and fix it and then move it to the active set. And it's almost like having a brand new joke. It's very exciting. I'm from a family of performers on my mother's side. My mom and my aunt were dancers for the Paris Opera. My uncle was uh, an actor for the Comédie Française. And my two cousins have since gone on to be, they were both actors also when I was growing up. So um, my cousin says, it's a virus that we have. <laughs> But so I had that on my one side, but I just always thought I was too shy or too 
I don't know. I didn't think that was me, but I wanted it. I just didn't think I could do it. So um, I had tried ballet. I had tried ice skating. I was in a play in high school, but I wasn't loud enough. And um, this was before headset mics, you know. So, <laughs> so there was this frustrated performer in me. Um, and then I was a bartender at a rock and roll bar in New Hope called John and Peter's. And at that time, uh, they were doing comedy. First, my friend Janina uh, had a comedy show, and then Andy Scarpati was started there. And I saw lots of comics that I later knew. Dennis Wolfberg, Joe Bolster, um, uh, Abby Stein would come, um, Jerry Diner. Did I say him yeah. already? Um, anyway, tons of tons of people that I, I eventually later knew. But at the time, I liked musicians and I liked rock and roll and I would watch and I'd never seen live comedy. And I just thought to myself when I'm watching them, what an unsexy profession, you know? I just thought these, I was turned off by the vulnerability of the comics. And I didn't think it was cool at all at, at that moment. You know, it was like 23, 24 years old. And I just thought, oh, that's weird. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I thought, what a weird thing to be. You know, I didn't want to, I never thought of being in it. And then one night I was tending bar and it was busy. And um, we're cruising up and down, serving drinks and, you know, just bantering with people. And um, and I had this realization. I said, wow, I'm, I'm like the center of attention and I like it. You know, it was like <laughs> weird. It was like, well, that's so weird. So when I moved to New York, you know, I always was with around creative people, actors and so forth. And that's when I saw comedy, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this could be the thing. And so that's how it happened. So part of what inspired us to start the County Legacy Series was the loss of a lot of giants in the New York City comedy community. In the course of just about a year, we lost William Stevenson, we lost Angelo Lozado, and most recently we lost Vic Henley. We wanted to document the great New York City comedy artists and find out what they could pass on to the next generation of comics. And we've been very fortunate in getting so many great artists that are, you know, staples in the New York City comedy scene. From Tom Cotter, who has one of the most unique comedy styles anybody has ever seen. Brian Scott McFadden, who, who is legendary, not only in comedy, but in voiceovers. Wally Collins, who, who has got the easiest, most relaxed style anybody has ever seen. And DC Benny, who I think pound for pound may be the best storytelling comedian in the world. All of them had things to share. All of them had, you know, stories about how early influences helped them later on in their career. All of them have done multiple things from voiceovers to audience warm-up to being on television and they all shared their experiences. We've picked out some of their best moments, but you really should go back and watch their entire episodes because they are a lesson in comedy. Uh, I wish I could say, I wish I was disciplined to say that I write every day, but I, uh, I'm always tinkering, but I, I wouldn't say I'm writing. You know, a lot of it's just organizing because I have the notes that are in the phone, then I have the notes that are in my laptop, then I have the notes that are in the book, and you have to, 
have the discipline to sit down. And when you're ADD, it's not easy, but you have to sit down and really discipline yourself to take the little bits from the different topics and try to formulate them into something that hopefully will become comedy gold. Um, so it's a lot more organiza organization and organizing stuff more than it is just having epiphanies and writing. And Kerry writes on stage. I know comics who write on stage yeah. in the middle of their act. I've never, I don't think I've ever, ever done that. Uh, it's always premeditated, if you will. I've come up with a line or two on stage, but that those comics that consistently write on stage, I just yeah. sit back and watch them and I go, I, I, I don't have the bravery to do that. I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. I don't think I've ever done that. I've never said something that was so genius that I said, hey, write that down. I don't want to forget that uh, from stage. And usually you're catching lightning in a bottle when that happens. It just yeah. happens to be a perfect situation between you and someone in the audience or something. And you're never going to recapture that moment, I think. Yeah, but when you look at the list of comics that create almost exclusively on stage, it just boggles the mind. You know, somebody like a Robert Klein who says that he write, does almost all of his writing on stage. And they're like, really? How do you do that? And he's got seven HBO specials, so I yield. Yeah. No, I mean, whatever he's doing is working for him. Yeah, but then you have the, the people that are on our, our side of the coin, like uh, George Carlin, who never did anything unless he put it in a notebook first. So Yeah, he was a complete student. And a guy I really, when I started, it was him and Pryor with the two albums that I snuck yeah. into my home to listen to. And you talked about theaters. Those are four very different, you know, styles of venues. And do you need time in between them? Are you able to go from one to another seamlessly? Is it, is it a mindset that you have to go into, for instance, in the senior centers? I've got, you, you mentioned having to slow down a lot. Does mm -hmm. that then bleed into your next show when you're in a theater? Or are you able to compartmentalize? I think I've been at it long enough that I can kind of switch gears when I have to. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are, I always say it's seeds. It's all seeds. It's, uh, it's corporate, college, cruise ship, casino, comedy club. And then you might have country clubs at the bottom end of that. And so they are different venues. And you can obviously be a little bluer in a comedy club than you can on a cruise ship. And now corporates are bastions of political correctness where you have to worry about every syllable you utter, whereas you, we didn't 10 years ago. You could be a little edgier. So you have to uh, take all that into account. And you kind of have to put your uh, artistry on the back burner if you want to pay your bills and say, all right, I love this joke, but it's not appropriate for this audience. And as much as I love this joke and I want to use my artistic integrity and do what I want to do, I also want to be asked back and I want to get paid, and I don't want people besmirching me saying that I was sexist or racist or anything else. So you make sure that you're, uh, you're playing to that audience again and making sure that there's uh, utilitarian. You please the maximum amount of people uh, with the minimum amount of collateral damage, I think. That's kind of where I am. I actually, I actually you know, kind of like, a, like, a, like, a, a, like one of Michael Vick's dogs, I, I sort of like, so, sort of built I sort of started structuring my act in such a way to leave no silence anywhere where I could be yelled at, heckled. Like that back then, I, I, I worked so many of those gigs that, that if you left the slightest, you know, a t a slightest opening for anyone to say anything. So what I used to do to combat that, I learned just write 20 punchlines and just keep hammering them. Like, like I just kept writing. I would like write these long bits that just went on and on and on. And eventually the audience would be 
I felt like the audience, if they don't laugh at the joke, they'll just become exhausted. Okay, <laughs> and I would just keep and there, and they'll just give up trying to yell at me, and that's exactly what happened at some of those gigs. I would just keep talking and keep talking, and then and then and then and then and then and then, and they try to heckle me, and eventually they just gave up, right? And then I they, then and so and my act became like long and drawn out lists and 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 kind of fun size, which was good and bad, because in those environments it's great, but then you do something like Star Search or America's Got Talent. And my bits were like seven minutes long. I wasn't like, Tom Cotter is so great at that one line or one line yeah. or one line. My bits went on and on and on. Like they were these Wagnerian operas, you know, like, like, and, and so they were great for club, you know, it was good for clubs and stuff like that, but there was never, I didn't get that laugh, 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 laugh. It was just long, long bit, hammer, tag, 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 tag. So they don't, so they don't get you. And then yeah. I leave the stage like exhausted going, all right, I, I, they didn't shoot me. I made it. Another another day. Where's my hundred fifty dollars? You know, like the <laughs> cash. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. That was my closing. I always my father taught was a comedian, so he taught me. He said, if you close big, they'll never remember anything else, right? So I always the one thing I was good at was I wrote I wrote a, a majestical final bit that I always had that had tons of punchlines and tons of weird one-liners, and I always had something good to close with. So that if everything else ate it during the show, I would always be like, all right, I got a big closer coming. Just kill time before you get to the closer. And that was my I need the key routine from about being yeah. in the supermarket and not having enough cash. And they have to and the and the, the counter person would go, I need the key. And I had like 50 or 60 jokes in that thing that just like every boom, boom, boom. Like, you know, now they have to wait till they find the <laughs> They don't have where who's why where is this key and why can't they make a copy of it? Okay, that's what I want to know. We have all these technological advances, but they can't make run down to the hardware store and crank out a couple copies of the key and distribute it to the sadists that work there. Instead, you got to stand there for nine hours while they go find Gozar the key master. Okay, he's gonna come down and, and perform the voodoo ritual that opens the register so you can get the hell out of it. Yeah, so it was like that. It was like boom, boom, boom. You know. Scene various gradations of this crazy up and down industry we've lived through how many times have we lived through the whole oh the comedy business is done or the comedy bloom is over or the you know what i mean i we, that comedy's dead you know like New at York, least once a decade it happens all the time and it's happening now again you know it's like it's like the humor doesn't really die and for me because i grew up with a it, the thing that was weird about me is like my dad was a, because my dad was a comic and my grandfather was a failed alcoholic vaudevillian, right? Like, um, like I never met because he died of liver disease because he drank himself into a stupor. It's sort of like he he failed. My father succeeded at a certain level. I've gone by my father, but I'm trying to take it to the next level. You know, <laughs> like so so and uh, so so my thing was always that I've been around comics. I kind of understand comedy in a way that because my dad was a comic i kind of get the narcissistic wounding that comedians have the grandiosity the ego the the pain of it the anguish of it uh but the wonder of it and the magic of it it's all tied in that's what sucks that's why so many comedians kill themselves because you have to you know there's yeah. there's so many contradictions to this art form there's humor but it's I used to really fight that thing. I used to go, ah, it comes from pain, but don't accountants have pain too, you know? Well, the accountants have pain too. But yeah. like comedians are, are a specific kind of sensitive 
thing where it's brutally difficult uh, and we tap into certain things and try to deal with things through humor. And I, I was no exception. And I kind of, I kind of love, I love doing stuff about show business and performing and stuff that I know comedians are the most self-righteous. <laughs> I love them to death, but the self-righteous, Hey, you left the city. You're, you're, you know, you, uh, you have no right. I love that. That was to me so funny. Cause I can see the, I can see both sides of that. Yeah. I can see the argument. You left the city, so I stayed, and I should get those spots. But not because you know you did anything. Wrong. I just want the spots, and I just decide like that. That's the real dark motivation underneath it. It's this ego, you know. It's like it's like, and and that's why that's the, that's something you can illuminate with humor because it's part of the folly of being like a uh, you know a flawed human being, and we try to put these like positive spins on our darkness. And uh, and calling that out in a way that's like, yeah, I just want the spots, you know, <laughs> just like I'm not I'm trying to say, hey, it's wrong what you're doing. But you know what? I just I just kind of want the spots when you're doing a bit like that, where, you know, the audience is going to squirm, particularly white members of the audience are going to squirm immensely. Um, right. You seem to slow it down. Yeah. You seem to really take your time with it. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, um, because I'm going to tell you, man, it's, it's a narcissistic thing. I'll, I'll admit it. Okay. Um, because I know I, I, I got their trust, so to speak, before I laid that joke on them. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I have the audience trust, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, he's a harmless black guy. You know, he's, <laughs> he's the guy, he's the manager at, you know, at Best Buy. You know, we trust him. And, um, but I, I do want to show them that I am conscious of, you know, what's going on in the world. And, and it makes, it, it's really weird. It's almost like they don't want to be reminded that, you know, they do, they, they do do these things. And if I'm a buddy of theirs, I definitely want to extend to them, hey, listen, if I'm a friend of yours now, I want to make you conscious of things that you do, you know, to, to, to black folks or, you know, people of color. So in a fun way, if it's uncomfortable, Okay, fine, but the point is that check yourself and understand that you know this is this is a habit or something that um, that you know that you do in your daily life to so to speak um, get through or how to describe you know someone of color. Well, okay, so first of all, um, I would tell them watch as much comedy as possible, male, female, watch as much as possible because you know anything anyone that does anything well. Um, you, you learn from that. Um, yeah, that there. Um, there are comics who did an amazing arc. Um, Carlin did an amazing arc. Um, he went from, you know, this type to that type. Um, prior, actually. He, yeah. he, um, he saw, um, he wanted to be Cosby. And, his, you know, his first, I think his first Ed Sullivan set was just about as clean as could be, you yeah. know, and, and wholesome. You know, and um, but then you know you you see that arc. You know, um, who else? Uh, Lenny Bruce arced. Say it again. Lenny Bruce had a tremendous arc. Oh yeah, yeah. But then you know we we try to go so to speak. You know, there's another thing too is that, and I, I it breaks my heart is that comedy. There's so many comedians now, and it's, it's gotten saturated, and it's almost lost its its uh, intensity. 
and mm. Netflix has, you know, just throwing, just kind of like just throwing these comics up against the wall. And after a while, you start seeing the same type of comic, you know, and it's really sad, you know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the female comics, you know, get up there, you know, it's, it's something sexual, um, you know, it's something about breaking up the boyfriend or, or something that has to do with a body part or something like that. Um, Wanda Sykes, you know, she never did that. You know, she, she I, I mean, I, I know Wanda for years and, you know, her arc, it wasn't necessarily an arc. It's kind of like, she's, you know, she just got better, you know? Yeah. And um, if, she, if she did talk about, you know, the time when she was married, you know, but it wasn't, you know, so it wasn't sexual. She'll like just interject, you know, you know, what's going on and in her life, you know what I mean? So telling these young comics, yeah, watch as much as you can. And even when you watch as much as you can, you're, you're going to start to see a pattern. You're going to start to see like, oh, that's the same thing. You know, in fact, I was watching comedy with my wife yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. And um, it was so funny because it was frustrating for her because I was saying the punchline because I knew what was coming. Yeah, you know, and she's like, "Will you stop?" I'm like, "Come on, you, you've been in the game with me long enough to know that that's where it's gonna, you know, that's where it's gonna land, you know." So <laughs> it's um, it's gonna it's it's tricky, but you're gonna find those comics and who are unique, who are different, who are clever, um, who who are like the, those sentence surgeons, who so to speak take their life and and take you on this journey where you want to know more about them. And you're like, oh, you know, and when it ends, you're surprised. You're like, oh, shoot, I want to, I want to hear more. And that's when you Google them. That's when you go to YouTube and, and, and find out more about them. But um, yeah, that's, you know, that's the, the best advice I got for you. I have to give my wife credit for that a lot because I, when I first started out doing stand-up, I was, you know, I was a white comic. I mean, I still am, but I, in in uh, working in these in in black rooms, and I would just do characters uh, because I, I was afraid of bombing. You know, I mean, every time I could get you could get booed off. You know, so I had like an extra hurdle. So I would just do the bring the concentrate. But what I used to do to get people laugh, uh, to get people to laugh, that I I would just tell them about something that happened during the day or some funny story that happened during the week. But I could never bring that to the stage. I would just kind of extract the characters from the story and go up there, and and uh, and it would kill. You know, it would it would really kill. But I I felt like there wasn't a lot of me in there. It was just the characters. And then one day I was telling my wife a story about going to a prom uh, with this 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 drug dealer dude had threatened me that that I had to take his sister to the prom who was like 400 pounds, you know? And um, I told my wife that story and she's like, you gotta tell that story on stage. And I was like, well, you know, there's all this stuff in between and whatever, it's gonna be quiet. You know, people aren't gonna be laughing. She's like, you gotta tell that story on stage. So I went and I tried it and it eventually became, you know, through trial and error, the first story I did on stage, the biscuit story. And then after that, I couldn't look back because I'm like, this is what I do. I get, it's multi-dimensional. I get to be me and narrate it and, and have funny asides. And then I get to do the characters in the story as well. You know, so it's like making a little, a little movie, like a little indie film, you know? So that's, yeah. that's kind of the evolution of that. 
I do get bored with it. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I had a, I had a period for about five years where I, I was like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go on the road. I just want to stay in the city and do the, you know, do spots and stuff like that. Um, and I, at the time I was, I, I, you know, I, I was selling some real estate during the day. I was doing that during the day so I didn't have to go on the road um, because we were doing, we were doing some things here and it just, uh, I was kind of burnt out, but I got so bored with my, I wasn't generating a lot of new stuff and I got so sick. There's a, there's a 20 minute chunk of New York material. Oh, I get so sick of it. I got so sick of it, but when I don't do it for a really long time and like there's, it's a late night at the comic strip and people are drunk or whatever. And I have that in my back pocket. I'm like, boom, here's some subway stuff. Here's the heroin guy for you. Here's the, you know, the homeless joke. Here's, here's a taxi cab story. You, you know, it's, I, I feel great that I have that stuff in my back pocket, but then, you know, you don't do it for so long. You kind of forget, you forget parts of it. So, you know, you're up there, people are drunk late at night. It's the check spot, whatever. And you're like, I'll just break this tried and true out and uh and you're like wait a minute wait a minute what was that what was that punch you know so i i i i do uh i you know i don't remember what i have retired because i've forgotten it um yeah. i've forgotten those bits but there's a there's like a new york chunk that i hold on to that's like you know it's like a half hour you know no fat monster stories and bits and chunks just for the for those late nights you know for those rough times that it's 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 pretty old i'll, I'll say that it's pretty old <laughs> okay so i've been accused of starting the comedy legacy series because i wanted to be around performers who were older than me to make me feel young and uh while that is true i did want to be the young guy in the room again we did not shy away from talking to comics that were younger than me because the next generation of comics, the ones that came after me, have a lot to teach you guys as well. Um, and Sean Lynch, who is a writer extraordinaire, uh, playwright, who has had productions in Edinburgh, and he, he's worked on Celebrity Deathmatch on MTV. He's also a wonderful voiceover artist in his own right. And Liz Mealy, who has systematically used social media better than any other comic I've ever seen. Those two performers in particular came in and had a lot to talk to us about and opened my eyes in ways that I had not thought about before. Now, we've picked a, a few great clips from them, but you're really going to enjoy their full videos. Well, I mean, like I said before, after that, after that summer in 96, I, I really became obsessed with listening to the other comics, knowing their other bits. Even if I was just doing a guest set, uh, even if that 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 the more I paid attention to the audience, or the more I could um, use a callback with 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 the audience, uh, or with uh, one of the other comics bits, uh, it, for some reason it, it elevated my relationship immediately with the audience. Like usually, as soon as the the MC would like list a credit or or, or bring me up on stage, one of the first bits. If one of the first bits I did, I was like, well. Looks like Jim's not going to Mexico this year again. You know, blah, blah, blah. That one joke, even if it wasn't a great joke, the fact that I threw back to you, mm -hmm. it 
it just helped the set. It helped. It it it, it, it was like being introduced by you. Yeah. To the audience because you had already established that rapport. It was sort of piggybacking on that, like, oh, this guy must be a friend of Jim's. You know? <laughs> and yeah, I, and in a so, sense of community. Yeah. And I, the, the power of that, you know, that, 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 was the, that was the biggest thing is that it really does come down to your relationship, the building that every, every show is a first date with the audience. And, and when I kind of relied on that, that it was just sort of an introduction, there needed to be trust, there needed to be a rapport, um, it, it just changed the sets. And especially at that time, um, you know, we're, we're talking like mid-90s here, um, I didn't see a lot of comics my age doing that. So it kind of helped to sort of separate me from the herd of, you know, Clinton impressions and, and Monica Lewinsky jokes. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, you know, the, the process has changed so much uh, over the past three decades. It's like you're saying, like in the nineties, it was that matching voice to picture. And, you know, that had its own set of challenges. Um, it, it was, I mean, doing cartoons was not, not different than, you know, doing looping for movies of, of your own dialogue. Um, but now, I mean, I can, I can really only speak right now for, for, uh, the animation that's in video games right now. Now, a lot of the times, uh, they will have a camera on you and they will have, uh, they, they'll mark up your face and they'll actually like any of the work that I've done on the, the walking dead the past couple of years, you know, that a lot of the times that'll be my face. Those would be my facial expressions that Max is doing along with the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a different, it, it, it's, it's sort of a different thing now. Now it's, now it's sort of the, uh, the cart leading the horse where a lot of the times, uh, they'll, they'll video record my face while they'll be recording my doing the voices and then the animators will match accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, which was actually the polar opposite is when you, of when you were doing Shrek, where it was you matching your voice to the, to the image there. But, there, you know, I will say in traditional animation, it still is that Shrek way. Whereas with video games now, it is actually the cart leading the horse. And with the Grand Theft Auto series, with the Manhunt series, uh, with a lot of the, the various series, um, it, uh, it is real-time uh, video audio recording. And then they sort of... It's like the it's like the computer uh, equivalent of rotoscoping, where they just sort of paint over the actor. When did you feel that turn? When did you feel that you were able to use that confidence in the way you wanted to? I really do think it took like 10, 11 years. Like I, I've always suffered from low self-esteem and I thought, I don't know if you experienced this, but for whenever somebody would be like, you're a great writer or you're a good performer, I would be like, I tricked them. Like I tricked them. Like they'd be like, oh, your stuff is really smart. And I'd be like, ha, I'm not smart. I tricked you. (laughs) Like it just felt like I couldn't absorb the compliments because I didn't feel like they were true. And it felt like anything I did wasn't good enough. And I, even when I was getting good responses, I felt like I could have been doing better or I should have been doing better in my career or I should have been further. Or um, if people really enjoyed me, I'd have this massive following. So I always found an excuse to belittle my abilities and my efforts. And I think with, honestly, with therapy and having good friendships and like, like 
longstanding friendships and, and having good peers that believed in me, it took a long time for me to hear it. But when I started to think of a joke, get stuck and pull it out in a way that only I believed in it. Like, have you ever, like a good example is Adrian Appalucci is a good friend of mine. And she has this superpower where like, she'll have an early idea. She'll be like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a bit about this. What do you think? And I'll be like, I don't see it, man. And then the next day it's her best bit. Like, it's like to the point where I'm like, how did, like, I, I couldn't even see you turning that premise into anything. And it's now the funniest thing I've ever seen. And to me, it felt, she might not feel like it's innate, but that was always when I looked at her, her superpower. And it took me 10 years to go, I can make this work. It feels like the premise is too sloppy. It feels like it's too much of a stretch. It feels like nobody cares. It feels like it's a boring topic, but I go, I'm passionate about it. And I, ha I now feel like I can make any joke work. And that, that confidence in my writing ability took a long time. So, so let's, um, let's talk about writing process. Because um, we've had a couple of conversations, not in a lot of years, but we had a couple of conversations about how you write, which yeah. is a lot different than how a lot of other comics write. So can you talk us through kind of the, the blossoming of an idea when you get an idea to how you bring it on stage? Yeah, it's changed a little bit, honestly, in the last five years. Weirdly mm -hmm. enough, my iPhone has changed my writing, but it's still... Um, mostly the same it's you know it's the initial idea and i always say i think it's really detrimental for people to believe an idea has to be like i think this is going to be funny or i think this is funny it's usually just a sticky idea just something that makes me it usually comes from an extreme emotion i'm you know completely confused i'm absolutely enraged i am overjoyed i am deeply depressed it's like this extreme emotion for something that has happened or how i feel or my opinion and it feels sticky in the sense that I can't stop thinking about it. I am so scared about this issue. I am so pissed off at this person. I am so confused about this process. And so I write down just the thought, you know, I, I don't understand how umbrellas haven't improved. Like, why is it that they're still the same as they were in like the sixties? So I, it might not feel like an idea, but it is something that bothers me every time it rains. So I would just write the idea down. And then at some point, either the fact that I've written it down and just the, the spark, like they say with creative processes, just putting something down or just thinking about it. When I go for a run, when I talk with a friend, it won't even be an active process. It'll just kind of be in the back of the mind and I'll almost have like an impulse. I'll be like, ah, I feel like I got to flesh out this umbrella idea. And I'll just start taking that one line or those couple of lines and I'll just start writing everything that I feel applies to it. And that'll be maybe, it could be a page, it could be five pages, but it's just unfiltered, how do I feel about this topic and it, wherever it goes. And then before I go on stage, if I do a new material night or what have you, it's about what are the, the main ideas of this thing? Is it, you know, umbrellas need a new inventor? And this is, a, I don't have an umbrella joke, but like, is it that, you know, umbrellas have uh, caused racism? I don't know, like whatever it is, but I'll find the three different ideas in my rant and in my, my fleshing out that I think have legs. And then I start trying them on stage. So I would say five years ago, almost pre iPhone for me, cause it took me a long time to get a smartphone. I would just, it, the joke had to be like 70% written out and I would use the audience to kind of guide me to what 
people think is funny or has legs or what people are really resonating with. Now I can try a joke that's like 20% an idea and I'll just turn on my recorder on my phone and I'll just let myself talk out of my ass. And in that kind of, it's going to be sloppy. Like it's going to be too long, meander in ways that are unhelpful. But in that, I'll find nuggets of idea. It's like almost a second way of fleshing out the idea. So, the so I think for me, one of the most eye-opening things was that nobody has the same process. That some of us are very committed to pen and paper and some of us are very improvisational at what we do. We spoke to a couple of people that have deep roots in improvisation. Uh, Peter Spellos, who is probably one of the most beloved improv teachers in all of America right now. Uh, and we also got to speak to Rick Overton, who is a brilliant comedian, a brilliant actor, but he brings improv into everything he does. And talk, talking to them, listening to them talk about how they bring in that process of being open and listening on stage, again, very eye-opening and something that every comic should hear because every comic's going to want to use those tools. Not at all. You know, I was just a fat funny guy on 63rd street doing it <laughs> and all of a sudden everybody hears about what i created oh yeah guy. and it's like we got to get him to our team so it's like now i'm the director of my own club i'm director of improv at the comic strip yeah. and that was like 16 gunslingers oh, that yeah. was a herd of cats you guys because you were all talented you were you wanted to play but you were punchline oriented you yeah. know and but it was the greatest variety show, you know. Like I said, the names we were talking before, you and Scott Carter and Rob Ross and Colin Quinn and Wayne Fetterman. And we and had uh, Bill Murray walk on one day and we had um and we had Robin Williams walk on a couple of times. So Yeah. Jim, those were the halcyon days. You know, you don't yeah. know they are when you're in it. But, but you know, three hundred uh, clubs across the country. Yeah. And I had, I was lucky enough to do improv at a at a stand-up club because I explain it as stop wanting to get to the kiss. I want you guys to get to the moment before the kiss because that's the, you know, and I use it, that's the exciting moment. The, the prelude to anything, you know, once you resolve something, the scene is over. You, you got to sit in the tension because that's where it gets interesting. Why? And, and I was never a fan of Lucy and I don't know why because, because probably this, she was always in a predicament. You know, and I always felt uncomfortable that she was in a predicament. But that's a very old school setup of the of of the scene. Our boys, our girl, our heroine. You know, it's very perils of Pauline. How did how did they get here, and how are they going to get themselves out of this? You know, in a sense, Jim, that became Seinfeld too, because yeah. you you. You know, and Seinfeld is, a much, is as much commedia dell'arte as it is anything else. You know the characters, the characters are well-defined, and you tune in each week to see them act exactly as you know they will, you know. Well, improv is different. Yeah. You've got to uh, stay in that moment and don't know what's going to happen. I, I play an improv game that they hate. They groan when I play it. It's called um, First Word, Last Letter. So I do a sentence... And the last letter of the last word I say is the first letter of the word you have to start. So there's no not listening. You can't create anything because you don't know how your sentence is going to start. It's torturous 
but it gets them to really listen. Back in our days of comics for Bimbra, we used to do that with the uh, poetry game. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And uh, as comics, we would all fuck with each other. I, I remember Wayne Fetterman giving me orange and right. uh, me giving Rob Ross galaxy because uh, we just needed to do that. But to Rob Ross's defense, he came up with panics me. So it, good for him. That was a couple of funny gentlemen you're talking about. Yeah. We've come up with different uh, poetry games. We do a Dr. Seuss poetry game now. Oh. Almost rhyming couplets. And we tell it like we're telling it to little kids. And it, 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 it works. It's a different show I do now, Jim. You know, there's, there's different improvs. And, and I've worked, you know, when I'm in Indiana last year, we did a, a big show for the local high school, one of the local high schools, because one of mine is the teacher there. So these kids are my theatrical grandchildren. And I came in and <laughs> did classes with them because um, they never, she said, oh, they're not going to know what to make of you. I went, oh, I know. I said, first of all, when I'm in Indiana, I look like I'm in the witness protection program. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, they give me new eyes. Those 16, 17, 18 year olds. I used to hate teaching that age because they're pudding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're too, they're too amorphous still. You know, I want them a little bruised and battered. I can handle that. I can teach you how to get out of that. But they, their spirit is undeniable. The fact, and it's said, the fact that I can't be in Indiana right now with all these kids who are not having their graduation. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. having their graduation online. Um, uh, really, that's the saddest part of this pan pandemic for me is I can't be with, I can't be with the kids. You know, I can't be because they're the ones who are re-energizing re me. And at 66, walking with a cane, I've never looked more like Perry Mason in my life at this point. <laughs> in the older years, yeah. um, um, they just make me want to work harder. The rules are kind of basic things like a relatability factor within the bit. So mm -hmm. it's not just your indulgence towards yourself. It is you're, you're accommodating everybody else's perception of what you're doing up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's that dance, that balancing act at all times. How far do I push your recognition of everything that's supposed to be? You laugh because you know what I'm talking about. And then that, oh, I surprised you. How much of a surprise? Too much of a surprise. No one gets it. Yeah. And back and forth. And it, it that's a beautiful thing about doing set list. Set list, this creation of Troy Conrad's, is a game where there's a projection screen off to one side or the other. And you're standing there with a mic, cold crowd staring at you. You are not allowed to use your act, not one syllable. You can't use your regular act, the one you're always up there doing. If something shows up out of the past that wasn't current, ah, all right, we'll let that one go. But as a rule, we're watching. Don't do anything we know. And so they project a topic, and it's not normal topics. Okay. It's weird things. It's blended words. And then you... you, you uh, like uh, proctometrist was one of the ones they threw at me. And I, and I opened and I came back with, uh, well, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. That's a great line. Yes, you that know, is but, a great line. <laughs> every comic has this in them. There's this thing that come up with a great line. You do it every weekend. 
Yeah. You used to do it every weekend before this. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be back to doing it every weekend. Yeah. But, uh, right now I'm doing it every Zoom show I get. <laughs> this, is the, this is the gig, man. This is the norm for right now. It will change. And I keep telling the youngins it'll change. But, you know, some of them are losing hope. You know, we were very fortunate and we got to live through the boom. We got to live through the 80s boom. Uh, and we, we've seen a couple of busts in our times, too. But, you know, uh, this is the first bust for some comics. So there, there's a, a lot of panic that's setting in among the young men's. Um, like, you know, are Zoom shows all that there's ever going to be? And, and that's something that I just wanted to point out that, you know, the greats, you know, people like yourself, and uh, we talked to Tom Dreesen earlier on, on another program, it's the ability to adapt to the circumstance. That's what comics do. You have a corporate show. That's one style of show. You have an all improv show. That's another style of show. You're in a club. That's another style of show. This is just another note that we're all learning at the same time. And we'll take what we learn and make the other shows better too. Do you find after all these years, you're still learning, still growing? And is, is that still part of what turns you on about the media? Yes. And. Nice That's the rule joke. with the improv, man. Yes, and it never went away. It doesn't switch and become a new rule. Yeah, it stays. Yes, and until. <laughs> what? What was the moment you knew that you could do stand up? We all start. We all want it, but there's a moment that I find that comics are on stage and they just know it. Well, playing with Roger. Mm -hmm. Roger Sullivan from uh, Sullivan. Roger Sullivan of Overton and Sullivan. We, we would start riffing around. And mm -hmm. my confidence built around the, the, the slow build of the riffing. And, mm -hmm. and then Martin Harvey Friedberg helped me build more confidence being in Zen Boogie. The New York production with Roger helped build the confidence. Then playing with the original Off the Wall members, Joanne Astro and Mark Lano. Yeah. on my own when Roger and I were starting to run into, you know, the teams, they seem so golden and easy going and magical when no one's paying. But the second there's a paycheck, you're a team. And a team only gets paid once for a time frame. They don't pay twice just because you're jammed into that amount of time. Yeah. So you got a, that long drive home arguing over whose premise is more important than whose punchline and, uh, yeah. Money just tears the team apart, you know. It was art. It was art for a little while. When it was free, it was art. Okay, so I'm going to gush because I got, in my opinion, the greatest living comic to be on the podcast. Uh, Franklin Najai is storied in what he is able to do on stage. When you listen to his albums, they're effortless. They're brilliant. He's jazz-influenced. He's influenced by writers. You, you can hear the musicality in what he does. Just watching the man perform is a virtual clinic. And sadly, for us as a generation, he is retired from performing and living in Australia. And I was able to convince him, um, through a, a whole lot of begging, to come on and join us on the Comedy Legacy series. And he was gracious. And he spent so much time with us. We endured so many technical difficulties 
recording from Australia to, to New York and beyond. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, if you don't watch any other episode of the Comedy Legacy Podcast, you need to watch this one. Because Franklin Ajay is just everything that a comic should aspire to be. And listening to him, listening to him talk about his craft, listening to how open he is with everything he does, listening to him talk about writing for other people, it's amazing, it's inspiring, and it is uniquely Franklin Ajay. We're, we're going to end this episode with Franklin talking about some of the things that only he understands, but hopefully, listening to it, we can learn as well. You know, and I think another thing that uh, helped during that time was that was the era of the comedy record. Okay, so when you really did listen to comedy, you were listening to great people who were painting pictures. And the key is in anything, whether you're writing a story or uh, doing comedy, is see it. You know, uh, you've got them. Okay, and that's the key thing. I always would tell people. You know, it's not about the joke, you know, and it depends on your comedy, because I wasn't really into joke jokes. So I was, you know what I mean? And that was, I felt it was really important that I learned audio, through audio listening to comedy more than visual. Not today, there's YouTube of everybody, right? Mm -hmm. But, and, and you can learn from that, and, I, and you should watch that and study it. But I really always tell people, hey, listen to a CD first, you know what I mean? And, and see how they get, how they get you laughing. And you're not and you're not watching them because they've got your mind visualizing what they're talking about. So that is very important. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of. I think that Chappelle does it very well. Um, mm -hmm. I think I saw Bill Burr's special recently, and he does it very very well. You know what I mean? He uh, gets to get you into. I think getting them getting drawing a picture for your public's mind is is paramount. It's. It's the key, I think. And I work on that all the time. I used to work on that all the time. You know, is this, because I'm seeing it in my mind. Part of it was I'm seeing, I'm seeing it myself. When, when I have a memory that when I was doing routine or talking about something, I would be seeing it, you see? So I would actually be communicating what I'm seeing to them because I'm seeing it very vividly, okay? And if I can see it, then I can make them see it. You know, and that's really the key. I learned when I was over here, for example, I think I really grew as a comedian over here, but I had to make Australians aware of things that were distinctly American and make it understandable to them to get the laughs. Like Jack LaLanne was an example of a routine. Jack LaLanne was unheard of over here. And I had a great Jack LaLanne routine in America. Everybody knew him and I could make fun of it, right? So, but, so I had, Right. So I could just describe what he did. And by the time I could get to the punchline, for example, with the audience would have a, already know in their mind what he's like so they could follow onto the punchline. So I feel like I learned really uh, well how to paint a picture in people's minds about things that they don't they aren't aware of. And when I would talk about something happening in Africa, which obviously most people may not or Zaire, which most people would not be aware of, I could paint a picture in their mind of what had struck me as odd and get the laugh. And so I really felt that was major for my growth as a comedian, because I didn't know I could do that till I had to do that, you see. 
Yeah. Okay, yeah. you're back. <laughs> we are back. Okay. We yeah. surprised. Yeah, I, I was very surprised because at the time I came up, Richard Pryor was at his peak. Carlin was at his peak. Pine was at his peak. So I was actually coming into that arena right at the time. So first, so first off, they were all three my idols. So I realized I'm right here, right there. I'm coming in. And certainly I felt I was overshadowed by them trying to, you know, get a foothold in, but making a little bit of a, uh, making a little bit of a mark. But then, you know, Richard was really, Richard, then Eddie, then Martin Lawrence, Eddie Griffin, all of them overshadowed me as black comedians. You know what I mean? When, uh, and so I actually felt, and they all seemed to really be influenced by Richard. Whereas I was influenced by Richard, but not as much as them. You know, because I, I was influenced as much by Klein and Carla. And so I felt, you know, when, when people thought about, you know, the black comedian, which is the idea of a, the black comedian being high energy, you know, be, uh, you know, very high energy, which I wasn't, you know. And everybody after, you know, Eddie was very high energy, uh, Eddie Griffin, uh, Martin. And so I felt like, well, well, I don't have that and I can't do that. You know, and I felt like they surpassed me, had a lot more prominence, had a lot more influence, you know what I mean, on particularly young black comedians. I felt that I had no, I just, it's honest, I felt I had no influence whatsoever. Not that it bothered me because I wasn't out there trying to influence anybody. You know, that wasn't the goal. I was trying to, I'm overshadowed. That's okay. I don't really have an impact. I was surprised. When I came back from Australia in 2004 and talked to a lot of young black comedians, that I that I had been noticed. That was the biggest surprise. And I did, I did um, a special for BET for yep. yeah for BET. They asked me to do one. You know, so I just I so I did that thing a special for BET, one hour special, which surprised me. He said, and um, all these young black comics came to see it and came back to talk to me. And that surprised me very much so. I went, wow, I didn't, I didn't think you cats were paying attention to me at all because of you know, all these people I had named previously. I thought that's, those are the guys that had your attention. And they said, no, we've been watching. We, we really respect you what you do. And I went, wow, okay. A very pleasant surprise. Recently, I found out that Kevin Hart plays uh, a lot of my material on his show, and that's that's uh, you know that's uh, created new fans. He plays me quite quite regularly. I hear. Yes, you know? he does. And so I, when I, I found out when I came back for Deadwood, somebody said, "You know how I found out? Look, I, I you know I'm on Sound Exchange, so I sent a lot of my material to the comedy networks on Sirius and whatever." So, and I was getting a little bit of money every now and then. And then all of a sudden I started getting a lot of money each month. And I went, what's going on? You know, just last year, about yeah, two years ago, all of a sudden each month I started getting a lot of royalties from Sound Exchange. And I said, what's going on? When I got to Deadwood, I said, and the guy said, well, you know, Kevin Hart plays you all the time. I said, really? And then we were driving in the car and I came on on Kevin Hart's show. So Kevin is being so popular. It's been like an indirect boom to me you know what i mean yeah so where through kevin people have discovered me and my material is timeless it doesn't really date 
you know, that's something that I didn't, I wasn't do, planning on at the time, but I see it doesn't date. You know, it'll be funny forever because it does, it can't be dated, you know. We saw 13 unbelievably talented performers. We saw 13 amazing artists with different processes, different ways of accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish, and, and different ways of looking at a common art form. 13 different perspectives united in one artistic goal, comedy. That's what the Comedy Legacies podcast is all about. This show is meant to inspire you as a comedy artist to, to find your own creativity, to find your own process. Learn by the people who have come before you. Use the tools that they've shared with you, or don't use them if it doesn't work for you. Now, we're going to be back next season. And uh, you can watch every week on YouTube, or if you're impatient like I am, October 1st, you can catch the whole damn season. The entirety of season two, 16 episodes. They're all going to drop on allmediatv.com. All of them will be available on allmediatv.com. You can watch both seasons, 29 episodes, as well as a ton of other great content that you can find there. Next week, we're going to have a little uh, episode talking about who's coming up for the following season, but you don't want to miss it. We're just getting better. For everyone here at New Media Comedy Worldwide, for everyone at the Comedy Legacy Podcast, for all the wonderful artists that have chosen to share what they've learned with you, I want to say thank you for watching. I want to invite you to come back again. Keep learning, keep writing, stay funny. I'm Jim Andrinos. Bye, everybody. This has been a new Media Comedy Worldwide production.